I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. Hey, y'all. Corinne here. Here's a new one. The Vampire Theory. Our blood reeks of royalty. They can smell it in the air. We're so used to our own scent, we cannot fathom what we bear. They know of our greatness. I'm just trying to taste it while others are trying to waste it and the white man is trying to trace it. But even in trying to find what is truly beyond divine, they can never go back far enough. We're way beyond their time. Therefore, in the meantime, they hunt the queens and kings with crime. Used to hang us up with strings to trees and other things. Now they tote guns with beams and wrist rings. Same old ankle chains beating us the same. Ain't nothing changed. Except now they're trying to survive. Can't find any use for us alive. Not knowing we can't die. So while they're chasing blood, snatching bodies, eating babies, and raping our minds for having sex with our kind, they can only become us with every thrust I trust. They only raise our army, and I trust that we are righteous. You've just heard Vampire Theory, a poem by Corinne Gaines. In 2016, Corinne was killed in her home by a police officer in front of her young son. In the weeks following her death, Corinne's mother, Rhonda Dormius, became a member of the Say Her Name Mothers Network, a community of mothers and family members of Black women, girls, and femmes who have died from state violence. I'm honored to share that my team at the African American Policy Forum has joined forces with the Mothers Network to promote our latest book, Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. AAPF, as part of its Say Her Name campaign, has been holding space for mothers, sisters, and daughters of Black women killed by the police. This book is a vital call to action on their behalf, an effort to bear witness and to amplify their demands for justice. This network is, in many ways, a sisterhood, or as they have called it, a sorority of sorrow. The burning sands that each have crossed is the shedding of their loved one's blood. Facing such unimaginable circumstances, they lean on one another for healing and support in what is otherwise a very isolating experience. They also come together to have moments of joy, to laugh as well as cry, and to advocate for change in the conditions that have contributed to their loss. And AAPF has been proud to partner with and support them in this mission. Now, if you know anything about AAPF, you know we always do things a little differently. Our Say Her Name book tour was no exception. At each stop, we had performers read powerful passages from the book. We had AAPF artists in residence contribute to the evening with their brilliant offering of their very special calling. And I had the honor of partnering with renowned scholars and journalists to co-host each stop. That's who you'll meet in this episode. 
In Baltimore, Kay Weiss-Whitehead, an Emmy-nominated documentarian, radio host, and professor of communication, African, and African-American studies at Loyola University, Maryland, hosted our event. In Washington, D.C., we were joined by journalist Callie Holloway, an author and columnist for The Nation. And in Philly, at the Free Library of Philadelphia, Dorothy Roberts held an evening that we will not soon forget. Dorothy, I call her my sister in the law, is an award-winning author and expert on the interplay of gender, race, and class pertaining specifically to Black women and motherhood. Her latest book is Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. I called her a few days after the book tour to unpack the highlights from our time together. Dorothy, I'm wondering if you might help us sort of set the stage for the Philadelphia event. I'm not sure if this is how you wanted me to answer the question, Kim, but I am going to answer it this way, which is when I was originally asked to participate in the event, I thought it was going to be an ordinary kind of book talk conversation, which I participated in a lot. And so I imagined it would be you and I on the stage talking about your book. Right. (laughs) What it turned out to be was a spectacular, moving, multidimensional event that I could not have even imagined. I was honored to be MC. I knew it was going to be interesting and different, but it far exceeded my expectations because it involved, perhaps most importantly, the voices of family members Two of the family members themselves, Valerie and Gina, were on stage. And then there were actors who voiced and performed in the most poignant ways the words of the sisters and mothers of the women who were murdered by police. And then there was you, Kim, also opening the program with a reading from the book. I'm standing in an air-conditioned auditorium thinking about Michelle Cousseau and the countless other black women killed by police whose deaths no one was paying attention to. My audience on this balmy spring day is mostly made up of public interest lawyers, students, and faculty. I'm remembering the courage that Michelle's mother, Fran Garrett, exhibited after Phoenix police killed Michelle in her own home. Michelle's story, like those of too many others, would have ended when Sergeant Percy Duprat stole her life had she not been born to a tenacious mother who refused to let her daughter's name be forgotten. Fran was determined that her daughter's life and death would not be reduced to obscurity, another statistic that no one counted. Michelle was killed just five days after a cop gunned down Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. After seeing the community protests taking shape there, Fran decided to march Michelle's casket to Phoenix City Hall. In this brave act of protest, 
She joined a powerful tradition of Black women resisting and denouncing the state violence that directly threatens them and all too often destroys their families. France's march to the Phoenix City Hall was a flare in the night. Fran's radical act, literally placing her daughter's casket at the door of municipal power, not only demanded that Michelle be seen, but also rendered visible the police killings of other black women. The sorrowful procession of Michelle's coffin to City Hall left a searing image that spoke to the many ways in which black women's fate has been left in the hands of police, while their stories have been marginalized and sometimes erased. While Michael Brown's killing justifiably sparked a wave of nationwide protests, protests over lethal police shootings of black men, the killing of black women like Michelle had yet to be memorialized in widespread activations and denunciations. Fran offered a powerful and moving witness to the fact that black women were also losing their lives in circumstances that spoke to the disregard of black life and family bonds. There was no sound reason for their stories to be banished to the shadows of our collective consciousness, mere afterthoughts in the litany of savagery that has come to constitute anti-black state violence. Fran's act reminded us all of the obvious fact that slain women's mothers don't grieve for them any less. Their children don't cry for them any less. Their siblings don't mourn them any less. And we should not protest their killings any less then we do the killings of their brothers, fathers, and sons. Six months later, as I look out at the audience, I wonder who among them will know Michelle Cousseau's name. Would they know of any other daughters who were stolen like Franz was? Or was the erasure of these horrific losses difficult to interrupt because of the reflexive ways that the very notion of anti-black police violence defaults almost exclusively to our endangered sons. To make the patterns of erasure visible and audible, I invite the audience to join me in something new. I ask those audience members who are able to do so to stand, I tell them, when you hear a name you don't recognize, take a seat and remain seated. I promise to invite the last person standing to tell the seated audience what they know about the person whose name no one else recognized. Then I call out the names slowly, deliberately, and loud enough for even those seated in the very back of the auditorium to hear. Eric Garner... Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Freddie Gray. I'm always a bit surprised when one or two people don't recognize even the first two names, but fewer than a handful have taken their seats by the time I lift up Freddie Gray. 
the vast majority of people recognize these men and know the common risks that link their fates. They are black and did not survive an encounter with the police. I pause for a moment. I ask the audience to look around. The room is quiet and still. People take in what they have demonstrated. Group literacy about the vulnerability of black people to police violence. At the moment, it seems a completely obvious reading of the social knowledge that is minimally necessary to ground any conceivable collective action. I continue. I say, Michelle Cousseau. And then comes that whoosh of dozens, sometimes hundreds, sometimes a thousand people taking their seats. It is the sound of silence. The sounds of people taking their seats mount as I continue the roll call. Tanisha Anderson, Ayanna Stanley Jones, Kayla Moore, India Kager, Shelley Fry, Corinne Gaines. One person is left standing after India Kager, but I continue anyway so people can hear more names. At last, I release the last person from any obligation to speak. I remind everyone that I'm a law professor after all, and I only say the last person standing will tell us something about the name they recognize to ensure everyone's honesty throughout the exercise. There are nervous titters as the last person takes their seat. This moment releases some of the tension in the room, yet the point still hangs over us. The silence about black women who've been killed by the police has distorted our collective capacity to respond. We cannot address a problem we cannot name. And we cannot name it if the stories of these women are not heard. We have been looking for ways of actually bringing the book to life. Was there a part that you think is most memorable to you? Oh, it would be hard to choose. <laughs> the actors were so good at stating the words of the family members, both about their loved ones who were killed, but also about how they felt at learning about the deaths of their loved ones. But not only that, their memories of the positive things. That was something memorable about the program was the way that you emphasize this wasn't just about the tragedy, although that was conveyed very, very poignantly, but also about what these women were like mm -hmm. and yeah. how their loved ones remembered them. When we were thinking about how to present the Say Her Name book, it was important for us to bring these stories to life, for listeners to experience these stories in the same way we received them. So we turned to our director-in-residence, Owe Tempo, 
to curate performances of the testimonies of some of the women featured in the book. You're about to hear Kim Yancey perform a passage by Rhonda Dormius. Rhonda, you may remember, is the mother of Corinne Gaines, whose poetry you heard at the start of the show. My name is Rhonda Dormius. Corinne was my 23-year-old baby. Oh, she was a very, very feisty young lady from toddlerhood. Very outspoken. Kind of bossy at times. But she was just matter of fact. Growing up, she did very well in school and excelled in all her classes. She went to a college prep high school called Baltimore City College High School, and she was interested in political science. During her senior year, she lost interest in political science because there were so many things going on in society that contradicted what she was being taught. Now, I think that was the beginning of her starting to reach out and learn more about the government outside of what was made available through the media. She wanted to go behind the scenes and do her own research. Oh, she was an avid reader. Oh, my God, I would buy this girl 10 books in a week and she would go through them. She read urban novels, but she also read books about Marcus Garvey and other informative things. She graduated on time, and she chose to go to Morgan State University. She only stayed two semesters, and then she found out she was going to have Cody. So I started looking at different colleges that would allow young mothers to have their children because I wanted her to stay in school. But then she was like, well, you know, that's, that's going to be too much. So she directed her attention to her other passion. She got a cosmetology license and started doing hair and makeup. Oh, she enjoyed it. She bought two homes as rental properties that she used for income. She bought her own vehicle. She was independent. After Michael Brown, there was a whole snowball effect of police murders. Freddie Gray was a neighbor of ours. I didn't personally know him, but I knew him from the neighborhood, and it was literally a few blocks away. Everything that unfolded was literally around the corner from where she grew up. That was our community, and our community had been robbed. She was an activist role model. She wanted to teach because she was self-taught. She just wanted to enlighten the masses about things that were going on around her. She has a few spoken word poems that are out. She would always do her little rants on Facebook or Instagram about things that were going on in the world. Justice for Corinne. What does it look like? It looks like an officer shouldn't be allowed to make lateral moves within the department if they've had other issues. This was not Royce Ruby's first shooting. Justice for me is getting officers better training, making sure that they adhere to policy and not create new ones as they go along. The officer who shot Corinne was found not guilty because of the statues of such and such and such of the police code or this and that. They chose not to indict the officers. 
In September 2016, an internal police investigation concluded that Officer Ruby, who had previously been involved in a fatal shooting, was justified in shooting Corinne Gaines and would not be charged. He was subsequently promoted. We went to civil trial. It was February 2nd, 2018. It was four white jurors, two black jurors, who came up with their own settlement amount of $37 million. And they came up with that money based on the information that was presented from evidence. The county appealed. And on February 15th, 2019, the day before the anniversary of the settlement, the judge decided to overturn it based on qualified immunity. Needless to say, we're going to appeal. Oh, it's not about the money. We have to get the truth out there. When they decided to decline criminal charges, oh, they thought we were going to go away. They want us to go away. I just want everybody to know that the fight continues. Oh, there is no dollar amount that can remotely replace what we have lost. Now, I can do without the dollars. I want accountability. I want the people involved to be held accountable. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and speak for all of us and say, I want them to pay. I want them to feel our pain. They need to know. They need to come from behind the wall of protection and be held accountable. That's, that's what I want. Corinne felt like she was in a fight by herself. So she would be so happy that I am continuing her fight. In her last hours, she felt like she was alone. See, because that's the way the stage was set for her to feel alone. And I am going to continue battling for her because she had a message to get out. Now, I am going to clear it up for her. I am going to clear it up for her. I am going to deliver it the way I know she would want it to be delivered. Dorothy, thinking about some of the stories that we heard that evening, all of the women who were killed, who were elevated that evening, were killed in front of their children. Yes, that's right. As we pointed out during the program, motherhood is not a shield for Black women. Motherhood is supposed to be this sanctified status that women have that gives them respect and protection. But that's a norm for white mothers, especially elite white mothers. Mm-hmm. And in fact, black mothers, childbearing and motherhood have been devalued from the time of slavery. Black women were valuable economically for producing children that could be enslaved, mm-hmm. but not valued for their own care of their children or the loving bonds that they had with their children. And we can see how that devaluation has extended into the 21st century. The idea that Black women don't need to be protected by law or or culture you know, or policy. The only way I think you can explain it is this baseline of devaluation so that it doesn't seem like a crime. 
you know, one thing that someone said during the program mm. is until black women are free, none of us is free. I think that is so true in so many ways because this evaluation of black mothers is an excuse for having a punitive set of systems for families instead of resources for families. They're the explanation for having mass incarceration. They're the explanation for you know every bad policy in America. Black mothers have served to be, well, we need these policies because of bad black mothers. All the way back to the moment where the civil rights movement was interrupted by this idea that we're not fit for freedom because our maternal family structure is all jacked up, right? Bill comes back to Black women. Exactly. But on the other hand, and relatedly, it is Black mothers who have been fighting for a different, completely radically different set of policies that are humane are liberatory, that are caring instead of punitive. If you are concerned about justice and equal humanity and a more caring society, you have to be concerned about what underlies this violence against Black women. Absolutely. We often focus on motherhood and say-her-name conversations, but the network has grown to include sisters, too. There's a special trauma that the siblings of women, girls, and femmes killed by the police experience. We hear about it from multiple women in the Say Her Name book, like Jennifer Johnson. Her sister, Tanisha, was killed during a mental health crisis in Cleveland just weeks before Tamir Rice was killed. And Jennifer told us how the trauma affected her health, as well as the health of their mother, who suffered multiple strokes after the stress of watching her child lose her life on their own front lawn. On the book tour, we had another sister, Valerie Carey, lift up the memory of her sister, Miriam Carey. This year, Valerie commemorated Miriam's 10-year anniversary, and she did it with a beautiful event, the first annual Miriam Carey Butterfly Brunch. Our director-in-residence invited actor Margaret Odette to perform Valerie's passage from the Say Her Name book. My name is Valerie Carey. I'm the sister of Miriam Carey, and I'm a part of the hashtag Say Her Name Mothers Network. Miriam was a beautiful girl, a beautiful young lady, She wanted to be successful in life, and as she got older, she decided to go into the field of health, and she became a registered dental hygienist. I'm actually older than Miriam by seven years, and so there's a gap. I remember when she was a baby because she was so round and chubby. My father nicknamed her Butterball, and... I guess my favorite memories really started to develop when she got older and when we would actually hang out more. That was my little sister. The day that Miriam was killed, it was a Thursday, October 3rd, 2013. I believe it was a Thursday. I was in my office preparing for an event I was hosting that evening with Terry Williams. And so I was just really trying to get my thoughts together what I was going to say. 
I'm sitting at my desk, my laptop's open, and I use AOL. And so I saw on the main page there was a blurb about something happening in D.C. I didn't click on it because I was busy. I was in my zone, and I had a TV at the time in my office, and I didn't have it on. It was a little after two. My phone just started ringing incessantly from different phone numbers. A lot of the phone numbers I now know were coming from the D.C. area. I actually picked up one of the calls because it was a Connecticut area code number. And at the time, my sister was living in Connecticut. So I answered the call because I thought maybe it's my sister. And when I answered, this one particular call, there was a man on the other line. He was a reporter. He asked to speak to me. And then he started asking me questions about Miriam. What type of car did she drive? Did I know where she was at? And, and I just stopped and said, I'm not sure where this line of questioning is going, but before I could finish, he said, well, apparently you haven't been watching the news. I need you to turn on your TV to CNN. And when I turned on the news, I saw what looked to be my sister's car. I saw what looked to be my niece being held by an officer. And there was a footer that read, Suspect killed. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of that program. It was in so many ways life-changing for me and life-affirming as I think about the work that I do to amplify the voices of people who sometimes go unheard. That's Dr. K. Weiss Whitehead, our MC in Baltimore. She is one of only a handful of Black women who solo hosts a daily afternoon radio show and award-winning radio show at that. It's called Today with Dr. K. She's also the founding director of the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice at Loyola University, Maryland. She led our tour stop at the radical cooperative bookstore Red Emma's. Red Emma sits in about the center of Baltimore City. It is one of those quirky, unique, co-op type bookstores that you would typically find in Brooklyn, New York, and we have it in Midtown Baltimore City. <laughs> this is not somewhere where you're on a stage and you're removed from the audience. You are in the center of the audience. You are in conversation and in community with them. And when they choose to come to Red Emma's, it's because they're looking for that type of vibe. It was packed, I have to say. I mean, there's so many things that I have been anxious to talk to you about after the evening. Gina Best was one of the mothers who participated, and she spoke about the way the media have often been an arm of the police in the way they frame the story of the theft of their daughters' lives, in the way they present the women in some way as having gotten themselves into trouble. I wonder, as a media person yourself, what you might have recognized in terms of how the media is supposed to be one thing, but often functions as something quite differently. Given what we struggle with here in Baltimore City, because we talk about Black Lives Matter quite a lot, we haven't done a good job of amplifying the names of Black women and girls mm -hmm. who are killed by the police. We say, hands up, don't shoot. I can't breathe. You connect that to Black men and Black boys. 
As a media person, as someone who does a daily radio show, I know we are to blame for this. Because when an unarmed Black man or boy is killed, we turn the news over. Mm. And what we look for is what we call stickiness. Mm. We want to be able to have the story exist beyond that moment. So stickiness is to think about Trayvon Martin, iced tea, and Skittles. That's what people remember. Stickiness yes. is to think about, I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. It becomes a way of connecting the story beyond that moment. We don't do the same with Black women and girls. It also challenges me as a media person to think about the ways in which I am presenting the news and I am taking part in the deliberate erasure of the voices and family members of Black women and girls. Because when you don't tell their story and you know that you're supposed to, then you're making an intentional decision to erase who they are and who they were. I love this idea that you're bringing to us from the media world of stickiness. It gives a word to a gap that we saw when we started Say Her Name. The fact that although Black women were also being killed, there weren't available frames for people to say, oh, I know that story. I think that's part of the stickiness, the way you start telling a story. You know, a Black man is driving his car down the street and he sees the flashing lights in his rearview mirror. We immediately begin to fill in the details of this story because we've heard it before. We understand that this operates inside of a dynamic of Black masculinity always being under surveillance. So we understand we can put ourselves there at the scene as witnesses to it. We don't quite have that stickiness with respect to when Black women get killed. So that stickiness is part of what we're hoping the stories will be able to create for our community so that they live beyond the one event or the one name. I thought a particularly moving moment was when Valerie Carey, who herself was a former police officer, talked about giving the talk to her nephews, but never thought that she had to give the talk to her sister. Let's listen to that. It's very traumatizing to have your loved one taken by the hands of the police. It's a special type of trauma when you yourself have served on a force. I'm a retired NYPD sergeant. And as an officer, I would tell my nephew, I have two nephews, but one of them in particular, if you ever get stopped by the police, this is how you speak to them. Tell them your aunt's on a job. I never in a million years thought that I needed to talk to either of my sisters because I didn't really think that my sisters would ever get stopped by the police. Racial profiling, you kind of look at it more being done to men as opposed to women. But my sister, who wasn't in the commission of a crime, who was driving with her baby in a car, who ultimately was shot in the back of her head and her back five times while she was driving away, wasn't a criminal, never been arrested. And I never had a conversation with neither of my sisters about the talk, what to do and stop by the police. So being educated, being degreed up doesn't make you immune from 
being put in a situation where you have officers who abuse their authority and commit crimes. You could actually hear jaws drop when people heard that Valerie herself was a police officer and that many people in her family were in law enforcement. It was a moment for a lot of us. Valerie gave us some of the language we needed to be able to begin to think about how to have this conversation because it's one, we're well-schooled in how to do it with our sons. We haven't quite learned the language we need to have it with our daughters. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the questions that I hope we continue to ask is, why don't we know this? Why is the fact that we need to give that talk to our daughters as well as our sons such a revelation, right? This is somewhat the consequence of the erasure that we are trying to meet when we say, say her name. Another aspect of that has been what is historically continuous, the devaluation of the family bonds that Black women have with their children. We heard from Rhonda about the way that her daughter, Corinne, was cruelly isolated by the police. The police used her phone to communicate with Corinne as though they were speaking for Rhonda. As she tells that story, we can see how little regard they have for our family bonds, how difficult that was for Rhonda to be there and not be able to assist her daughter, not be able to try to save her life in the standoff. Let's take a listen to that. Yes, they isolated her. What they also did was in the in the beginning, when I went to the scene, because I was there and many family members were there, I had my phone with her therapist on active. The officer took the phone from me, cut it off and said, we'll talk to her when we need to speak to her. But what they did do was they communicated with her through my phone as though they were me. I had family members that were texting me and they were trying to figure out what was going on and the law enforcement was answering as though they were me. When they released the phone back to me, they weren't even smart enough to delete their messages. They were still in my phone. They cut her lights off. They cut the air off. They did all kind of stuff. I pled with them. I said, let me speak with her. Let me go in. No, that's against police policy, which I found out later on from the state's attorney. That wasn't a police policy, that they would have normally used family members to try to support the situation. But they isolated her. And she had my grandson in there. They followed us around while we were in the staging area, I guess to make sure we didn't communicate with her. It was a lot of things that went on that just totally went left. I just will never make rhyme a reason of that officer shooting her through a wall in her back. One of the things that Rhonda said on an earlier episode in which we featured the story of her daughter, Corinne Gaines, I asked her about the inhumanity that was obviously on display in the way she was treated. And she said, well, first they have to think we're human. And that just... That took my breath away. I can connect this back to the media for a moment, that they don't think that we're human in that moment. They don't think they're, we're human when they shoot and kill us and leave our bodies, either on the street or in the car for everyone to look at and gawk at. And then the media picks this up and we don't act as if they are human in the way in which we tell these stories and the ways in which we erase these stories or even worse, Kim, in the ways in which we bury these stories. Mm -hmm. We have mm -hmm. to think that there is an intentional burial 
of these stories. It's not like we don't know the stories of Black women and girls who are being killed by the police, but we choose. It's chosen above our heads for those who are in power. We are given the mandate to bury the stories by not talking about them, by mentioning them as an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And I think that's some of the responsibility the media also has to bear. You talk often about this notion of Black history, that we know Black history is American history. But if you seek to erase Black history, what you are essentially doing is you're seeking to erase all the people that put the blood, sweat, and tears into building up this country, into actually speaking to the humanity of this nation, into speaking to what it means to have tenacity within a society that doesn't want you to exist or thrive. It is all interconnected. And this is why the battle to both say her name and tell our stories are linked together. Hey, thank you so, so much. It was such a treat to be in community with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor for me as well. Next, actor Rosalind Coleman reads an excerpt from Gina Best, mother of India Kager. India was killed in Virginia Beach in 2015 with her infant son strapped in the back seat. Someone asked me, Gina, are you always sad? And I'm like, yeah. And when I say sad, let me explain what I mean by that. You see the triggers on social media. Are you reliving this all the time? I'm like, I will never not live it. Never not live it. This is now a part of us. I hate the part of my life where I felt at one point that it wasn't, where I could not relate to someone having been killed by the police. For that, if anything has come out that I can hold on to after the murder of my daughter, I can look at another human another mother or father or child and say, you know what? I do see you and no one has the right to take your life because you're not in the right place. I don't believe any of our children were in the wrong place. Roman's birthday was May 11th. He's five now. He's got complete hearing loss in the left ear from the flashbang. He's disabled as well from the trauma. He's acting out. He's asking for me. He's really full of rage. He's waking up screaming in his sleep. He calls me Meemaw. I want Meemaw. I want Meemaw. Our children are traumatized for life. And once, while his brother Evan was in bed, he said, Grandma, I see angels all around. And I'm like, yes, you do. So how I keep them alive, how I keep India alive, is with chimes, wind chimes. One is a butterfly, because I call all my granddaughters butterflies. And this one with crystals, just with sounds, I tell Evan every time he hears the chimes that it's his mommy coming by. She's always there, and he loves that. You've heard me say that I walk around with an amputated heart, and that is literally the case. Here is a bleeding heart. I envision that when we say her name, 
And we remember, we amplify our beautiful daughters and sisters and queens. I like to imagine India answering back. I like to imagine every last one of our babies, our loved ones, answering back. And I'll imagine a world where not only are we saying their names, but you are, are doing it too. And we're not speaking against the silence. Tell someone, speak their names. It emboldens us. It gives us strength and encouragement in the very lonely times because there are no words to articulate the level of pain that we live with. It's off the spectrum. But we're here. We're here. And we're going to do something about this, sisters. It's starting with us, and we won't quit. This book is an exercise in bearing witness and being willing to sit with the cascade of emotions that come with bearing witness. In the excerpts from the mothers of Say Our Name in the book, we are angered by the contemptuous ways in which their loved ones' lives were stolen. We are shocked by the callous ways that a mother or a sister was informed or not informed about the brutal police killings of their loved ones. We are heartbroken to hear about the lifelong scars of the young children who witnessed the deaths of their mothers at the hands of police. We are frustrated by the compounding losses of institutional betrayal and communal abandonment experienced by the mothers and the sisters of the slain. Yet in the face of all of this, we are also uplifted by survivors' fearless advocacy for their sisters or their daughters in the aftermath of their deaths. We are privileged to see their lives through a special window into those little things that only the closest to them can invoke. We witness a magical moment of butterflies landing around a younger sister at Niagara Falls, a sister who was affectionately called Butterball by her father when she was a baby. This book has been written from many hearts and inspires to touch many more. The heart, we know, is more than a metaphor for love and loss. It is quite literally an organ that keeps us alive. Sadly, broken hearts exact a physical toll on the members of Say Her Name Mother's Network, some who we have lost due to stress-related illnesses. We will always remember and honor the lives of Vicki Coles, McAdory and Cassandra Johnson, both early members in our Say Her Name Mothers Network who worked tirelessly to raise awareness about police violence against black women. Vicki's niece, India Beatty, who she raised like a daughter, was killed by police in 2016. Cassandra Johnson's daughter, Tanisha Anderson, was killed by police in the family's front yard in 2014. And just months ago, our AAPF family mourned the loss of Amber Carr, sister of Atatiana Jefferson, and a dedicated member of our Say Her Name Mothers Network. 
Weeks before her death, Amber testified to the world about how much her family lost when her sister was killed by a Fort Worth police officer back in 2019 in the presence of Amber's seven-year-old son, Zion. We are reminded over and over again that when black women are killed by the police, when they are taken from this earth, the hole that is left in their absence is unfillable. Our hope with the publishing of Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence is to make the issue of police killings of black women a national conversation. And doing so at a time of rising censorship and attacks on black knowledge only motivates us to further our quest. First, families lose their loved ones to police violence, and then the fact that they've lost them becomes lost to their communities, becomes lost to history, becomes lost to the movement. We need to ensure that our history and our lives are not forgotten or silenced. And the first of many steps in that process is to say her name by bearing witness to their stories and sharing what you learned with your family and friends. You can play a critical role in breaking the ripples of silence surrounding the police killings of black women and in doing so, turning the tide of racial injustice in this country once and for all. To do this during each Say Her Name gathering, we say the names of women, girls, and femmes who have been killed at the hands of police. We read every name. Last year, we read the names of 178 people. And to date, that number has unfortunately increased to close to 200. India Kager, say her name. India Kager, say her name. India Kager, say her name. India Kager. Corinne Gaines, say her name. Corinne Gaines. Say her name. Corinne Gaines. Miriam Carey, say her name. Miriam Carey. Say her name. Miriam Carey. Say her name. Miriam Carey. Laylene Polanco, say her name. Laylene Polanco. Say her name. Laylene Polanco. Say her name. Laylene Polanco. Sandra Bland, say her name. Sandra Bland. Say her name. Sandra Bland. Say her name. Sandra Bland. Brianna Taylor, say her name. Brianna Taylor. Say her name. Brianna Taylor. Say her name. Brianna Taylor. Remembrance was much more emotional for me than I thought it would be. Callie Holloway is a journalist who covers race and gender. She's a regular contributor to The Daily Beast and The Nation. And she has bylines in Time, Salon, and The Guardian, to name but a few. Callie emceed our Washington, D.C. stop at the Busboys and Poets Cafe. I wanted to hear her thoughts on the power of the ritual of remembrance that we performed 
on the tour. There's a mix of things that come up because you're repeating the names and recognizing the weight and the heft that each name has, right? There's also the recognition that I had that this is a list that grows longer with each event, that the book itself is a moment in time. And so the list of 177 women whose lives have been stolen, that that is the shortest that the list will ever be again, Uh, that it will only get longer. Yeah, I really have to sit with how you frame that, like the book itself and that list is a moment in time. And there will be more. You're right, since we published the book, there have been other new names added to that list. We try to frame this book as a vehicle through which others could be brought into the commitment to bearing witness. Mm-hmm. And I think it is really important to talk about the fact that this was an event that we were holding in D.C., mm-hmm. um, a place that, you know, D.C., Maryland, that was connected to the lives of Corinne and India and, and Valerie. Yeah. So we are in not only sitting in the place within the vicinity of the lives of the women and girls and, and femmes whose lives were lost, but also we're sitting so close to the seat of power where that power is never being used to address what we are talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. It just brings me back to as someone who writes so much about inequality and often through the prism of race or of race and gender is just the fact that we're more likely to experience sexual violence, you know, more likely to be punished in school, more likely to be shot dead by police. You know, we are seeing skyrocketing rates of Black women, girls and femmes committing suicide. I mean, the numbers are astounding. It is a literal crisis. Yeah. And a lot of this is because of the inability of this country and this society, or, you know, I think it's generous to say inability, probably, you know, the unwillingness. Yeah. Refusal of this society to look at the collateral damage, the disastrous effects of this toxic combination of anti-Black racism and misogyny. Exactly. Exactly. I've shared many times that Say Her Name initially became our imperative when we were marching in the Eric Garner protest. And several people were enraged that on our poster, we had the names of Black women killed by the police. Mm -hmm. And there was a sense that we were being interlopers. So as we gather, we're always aware that we are doing that against an overarching message coming from our government and coming from our social order that our lives matter less. Mm-hmm. As we gather, we know even within the space of Blackness that our lives often matter less. And so we are committed to saying that our grief should not matter less, the losses should not matter less. And that is what underscores the imperative to say her name. I think a thing the event gave me is I started to think a lot more about not just the loss of the loss, which obviously you you explain yeah. the book. Mm-hmm. But within the testimonies in the book, these mothers and sisters, members of the Say Her Name Mothers Network, they talk about, and this is a repeated theme, how they can't even fully express the scope of their grief, right? They are not allowed to speak about how that includes the anger and sadness and pain and hurt and anguish, really, 
Because mm-hmm. to do that would be to be consigned to the role of the angry Black woman who therefore should be dismissed. Here's Gina Best. We are fraught with unspeakable, crushing grief that they know that they've inflicted upon us for generations. So what that does as a Black woman, it causes an unfettered rage to well up in I'm no longer ashamed to be called an angry woman. I embrace that. Because I'm an angry black woman, of a black woman who was murdered by police, Neanderthals, who didn't even deem her life worthy of living, and the baby was in the car. They were fully aware of that. This whole United States government was constructed upon racism. So I want them to stop lying and stop giving us empty platitudes and trying to placate us with these so-called band-aids over festering wounds that will never end. Here's our MC again, Callie Holloway. So they've experienced these grave losses. And even in this state of grieving, their humanity is further stripped of them in these insidious ways by this kind of ban on truly speaking to plumbing the depths of that grief. And, you know, I also want to build on that to say that I have noted how many times people who don't know the mothers and have never spent time with them also come away being shot that they're full dimensional human beings, you know? And people will say, wow, I was really shocked when I saw Gina laugh or Rhonda has such a dry wit. They reveal that the space that Black women have been locked into mm-hmm. even characterizes how people who are sympathetic to Black women think about Black women, you know. We're surprised that they have full lives and they are still full-dimensional human beings. And we also have to realize that these survivors are more than pain in the same way that their loved ones were more than the story of the worst day of their life. And that's what we try to lift up when we say we want to give voice to the lives that should have been. We want to imagine them beyond this thing that happened to them. And to do that is to walk with them, to walk with their spirit. So we want to thank you for joining with us on that journey. Thank you. I ended each Say Her Name book tour stop the same way I'll end this episode. You know how vital it is to me to connect the dots for people, to help people see how the attack on woke is, among other things, an attack on Black knowledge, on Black women's rights, on Black freedom, to help people understand why the fight for Black studies is about so much more than a few disconnected facts. It's important to examine the frameworks we need to hold the facts. When people don't know or haven't been exposed to the frames, they often forget the facts. Frames are the containers that hold meaning, that tell us what kind of story we are witnessing, and importantly, what these stories have to do with each of us. Perhaps most importantly for today's purposes, I hope the framework, intersectionality, helps you listeners better understand the vital importance of the Say Her Name campaign. Most people don't want to ignore, they don't want to marginalize, but they don't know what they don't know. You're gonna have to work at it because 
Our media don't have the frames to elevate what happens to black women and, and many people at the margins. Many of our movements are focused in a unidimensional way. They aren't able to really speak to the intersections of vulnerability. We have been talking about state-sanctioned violence against black women. Of course, it's connected to other forms of violence against black women, and we don't have a history of how black women have fought against this over time. And because we don't have that, when important historical moments that come mm -hmm. up and that legibility becomes absolutely essential to our survival as a people, mm -hmm. we miss the mark. That's what happened when Anita Hill showed up talking about sexual harassment and people said, what is that and why is a black woman talking about that? Because we don't know that history, we don't know about Rosa Parks, we don't know that she fought as a rape crisis person. She's a person who came into politics defending black women who've been sexually abused. Because we don't know that, we think that these issues around women are separate from the issues around anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And so when people say, why should we use intersectionality anymore? It's been undermined. It's not useful as the college board did. You see, I feel a way about it. <laughs> this is what intersectionality helps us see, what we would ordinarily miss. Right, right. I would encourage greater legibility, greater effort to read between the cracks, see what is falling mm -hmm. out of our partial education, <laughs> out of our inability to see how social disempowerment is reinforced across race, gender, class, sexuality, all the different ways that we have not fully been present for each other. Mm -hmm. So say her name is the embodiment. A mm -hmm. lot of people say, what is intersectionality? Read what these mothers have to say. Mm -hmm. It's not some highfalutin theory. It's the way our lives have been structured. Right. And it's the kind of knowledge we need in order to create transformative possibilities. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Thank you to everyone who came to our book tour stops, including the brave mothers and sisters of Say Her Name, Gina Best, Rhonda Dormius, and Valerie Carey. A round of applause for our fantastic performers, our artists in residence, and our MCs. Thanks also to my team at the African American Policy Forum, who worked tirelessly to help bring this book to life. Of course, we hope you are inspired to get the book and to bear witness. To find out where you can get your copy of the book, please go to aapf.org. As the holidays approach, take the opportunity to read this work, sit with the mothers and the sisters of Say Her Name, and talk about the importance of taking a gender-inclusive approach to the talk with all of your loved ones. And for those of you in the New York area, join us December 14th for the ninth annual Say Her Name commemoration, an evening of artivism, conversation, and remembrance. Registration details are on the African American Policy Forum's website. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced by senior producer Nicole Edwards and the team at the African American Policy Forum. Mixing by Sean Dunham, to support our show, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll be back soon.